Hello, and welcome back to Europe Listens. It's great to have you join us again. I'm Raphael Loss, ECFR's coordinator for Pan-European Data Projects. And I'm Jana Pulierin, head of ECFR's Berlin office. In this new season of Europe Listens, we're taking a closer look at some of the world's most urgent technological challenges, from data rights and digital access to cyber aggression and satellite security. As the EU moves forward in its self-proclaimed digital decade, there have been important advances in European digital policy, legislation, security and infrastructure, not least the Digital Services Act, designed to better regulate big tech corporations and create a safer internet for users. But to advance truly global connectivity, it's critical that the EU's digital conversation takes in perspectives beyond its borders. And that's exactly what Europe Listens is all about. An opportunity to listen to insights, experiences and expertise beyond Europe. To kick off this conversation, we're delighted to welcome to the show Jane Manga, a fellow in the Africa program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where she focuses on technology policy and digital development. Prior to joining Carnegie, Jane worked for the government of Kenya as an advisor and economic expert. In this capacity, she advanced digital economy policies and strategies for digital transformation with particular attention to innovation, the gig economy and digital inclusion. Jane, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Rafael, and thank you, Yana. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on Europe Listens podcast uh, and looking forward to this conversation. Jane, it's so great to have you on the show. I'd like to begin by asking you about digital access or perhaps digital borders. You've spent much of your career working on digital inclusion across the African continent. So what does access to the Internet look like in Africa today? That's a really interesting question. And thanks uh, even for opening up with that, because I think a lot of people tend to think Africa is one bug when it comes to digital access or, or one kind of narrative. But digital access in the continent is very diverse. I actually call it something, a mixed bag of opportunities or just a mixed bag of different narratives. When you look at the general statistic, with about 40% of Africans use the internet today. So 40% of Africans have access to the internet. But what does that actually look like and what that, does that actually mean? So internet penetration in Africa is mostly seen within the urban areas and not the rural areas. So those who tend to live in the urban areas have more access uh, than those who live in the rural areas. And another thing also to note is that this uh, mixed bag, it also happens differently within different countries. So there are some countries that have such great statistics. Like if you look at the ITU facts and figures, um, you'll see there are three countries. There's Morocco, there's Egypt, um, and I believe Seychelles that have over 80% of internet access in their countries. And then you look at the flip side of this narrative, and there are countries such as South Sudan that has 7% internet access. And then we have Somalia at 9%, and then we have Burundi at 10%. And where I am from Kenya, we have about 30%. So where internet access is such a diversity within the continent, but the statistics about 40% that Africans use the internet. And that's about, when you look at the population, that's about 800 million people then who do not just have access to the internet. 
but the good news is internet penetration in the continent is growing. It's, uh, it's, it's an, an upward trajectory for all these countries. There are countries that are already showing huge numbers of users in the internet. For example, Nigeria has a big population. It has over 100 million internet users. Egypt, the same, has about 80 million users. Uh, when now you come back to some of the smaller populations like Kenya, about 20 million users in the country. But again, the trajectory is good. The international bandwidth shows there's a huge increment on the bandwidth that is, is coming from the continent. So it's, it's something that needs to really be unpacked when we talk about internet access in Africa. And I always like to stress that when we have this conversation, it's about the 54 African countries, not the continent. And each country is so rich in its diversity. It's rich in its infrastructure. There, there are different variations around it. But those that remain, again, is rural, urban. Those are things you're going to see that there's a big divide. Those in the urban and rural areas, the big gender divide is also huge. Internet access for men is greater than internet access for women. So men, it's about 45% more, and for women, it's at 30% for those who use the internet. There are other issues now we can talk about what's causing this divide, but it's, again, just to emphasize that we, we definitely have a continent that is very diverse in how people are connected to the internet, but with great opportunities that are on the way. Thank you, Jane, for shedding light on this and for telling us a bit more in detail about barriers. In terms of advancing digital infrastructure and inclusion, what country-specific or pan-African strategies do you observe? Sure. The priorities are usually embedded in each of the country's national strategies. And we also have some pan-African strategies uh, within the continent for digital transformation. There's the AU, Digital Transformation Strategy, and there's the uh, Digital Economy Blueprint by Smart Africa. But then within the 50, over 50 countries, we have the different strategies and that now define the priorities. But once we look at them, you see a generalization because the issues tend to be the same. So you see a narrative that, that tends to, to emerge from the continent. And first, of course, it's access. Countries or governments want their citizens to be connected. And for them, that is a primal goal, is how do we get these our citizens connected to the internet? One thing I also would have mentioned earlier is that a lot of African citizens connect through the mobile phone. So mobile connectivity is key. A lot of young people, and I keep saying young people because of the demographic. Africa is a very young continent. A lot of people who are connected is young. They say in, in by 2050, a quarter of, of the human population will be people of Africa because of the growing youth. So getting these young people who are coming onto the internet is, is primarily key for most uh, governments. So how does that look like? First, we need to look at the infrastructure because there are two connectivity gaps that are beginning to emerge. There's a technology side, and then there are those that, that have been driven by the socioeconomic factors, which is the usage gap. When we look at the technology, then we are looking at how do we connect those who do not live nearby a broadband footprint. So you, you just don't have the technology to connect you, uh, mostly in rural areas. Most Some of African countries, the higher populations are in the rural areas. For example, Kenya, bigger populations live in the rural areas. Right now, I'm sitting in a town called Nyeri, which is about two hours uh, north of Nairobi. So it's considered more of a rural areas. So outside of the urban area here, most people just don't have internet access. They will have maybe 2G, 3G voice. Um, so then the question, what are these technologies that can connect us? And why are they not connecting? Because it's just not economically viable. Most of the people who live in the rural areas, so socioeconomically can afford some of these technologies. So then it's laying off fiber technologies, anything that will help 
the citizens have that broadband access and governments are also being given subsidies to that. So we are seeing a lot of government-private partnerships to just roll out these technologies in, in the areas that is not uh, economically viable. Then now comes the bigger divide, the usage gap, which I like to really stress. And a lot of my research has really focused on this because when we look at the statistics, the connectivity gap has been dropping. So a lot of people are getting connected, but we are not seeing the same increment of people connecting to the internet. Why? Because most people can't afford it or they just don't have the devices that connect to it. Africa right now is seen to have, GSMA has released some statistics that showing that Africa has the highest expense rate of data and devices, which is interesting because then we want people to connect, but they, they, they just can't afford these devices. Then we start talking about other policy measures. How can we get devices affordable to the citizens? How can we get regulations or data affordable to the citizen? So we are moving away more from the technology side of view of looking at this to the socioeconomic factors. And there are many also other things that are driving why people don't connect to the internet. There's also the issue of skills, uh, capacity building skills. How do you engage when you're online? There's also the content. A lot of content, something we can talk about in detail, is what kind of content is available within um, the African continent. Where is it coming from? Is it relevant? Um, is the language there? And then, of course, there's also issues of security for those people who are logging online. Do they understand um, what uh, what are the issues or what how they can protect themselves? So th there's a whole lot of usage gap issues that sometimes keep people away that also be, need to be looked at as much as we look at the technology. Last week, if you're familiar with WorldCoin, it's a company that is putting together a digital identity and they are also trying to build a digital currency around it. So they come to Kenya or they are, as they, they are build their, their company and they're taking iris pictures. So they have an app where they take pictures of, of, the, of your eye to build their digital identity. The regulations had already given them authority to operate in the country, but it was stopped by the Ministry of Interior because of the security issue. Most people were only going to have the iris scanned because of the incentive. You are getting about 7,000 Kenya shillings. That's about maybe $65, maybe. And for anybody who is worried about their next meal, and you're telling me, scan your iris, you don't care about where that data is going. So when I say there is issues of security, a lot of people now are also beginning to think, well, how can this harm me? So there's a lot of issues around that. And people are beginning to get concerned that some of these newer technologies also may drive the usage gap because of um, uncertainty of how it's being used. And people not really understanding how to use that. Last but not least, if you allow me, I'll also talk about the affordability of uh, devices. Right now, the continent is uh, relying heavily on imported gadgets. And again, we, are, we all rely on mobile phones to connect to the internet. How do we get cheaper uh, mobile phones into the continent? How do we ensure first that they are tailored for the African context? Most of homes here also have issues of electricity. So if you need energy to power a smartphone and the battery length of any iPhone, I'm sure some of you have iPhones or some of these smartphones, you need at least within six hours, if you don't charge it, that phone is uh, going to be speaking to you that you need to have it charged. So some of these issues of, of devices that are tailored to the African context is something that policymakers are beginning to discuss. How can this be done? And then with the content that is in there and the security around that. In 2021, the EU launched its global gateway strategy, committing 300 billion euros of investment in digital technology, energy and the environment in partner countries. In total, African nations will receive about half of that financial commitment. What kinds of considerations should guide EU investment decisions? 
You know, a lot of these investment decisions tend to be driven by domestic considerations, which is okay. However, the considerations for infrastructure investments also really need to take a critical and analytical look as to how the African continent is playing out. Again, what are the issues within the digital divide? EU cooperation traditionally has been on governance and regulations, data protection. Um, so I would say some of the softer issues around the internet or connectivity. But these conversations, yes, as they are important, then we also need to start unpacking what are the more nuanced and more pressing issues that are being called for within the continent. Digital transformation is happening in the continent, like I said, but is it, is it inclusive? So when we talk about EU investing in the continent, it really needs to start unpacking then where are the areas of opportunity? The digital divide is one that needs to be really, really looked at and how can EU use its capabilities to support that? Secondly, when it also comes to innovation, the young people are also really interested in innovating and scaling up. I think the proximity of EU and Africa offers a lot of opportunities for bilaterals or trade investments or just collaborations whereby there can be learnings between both continents. There has also been a traditional framing, and I'm trying to be politically correct, that a lot of uh, investments that come to the African continent are more developmental, uh, coming to help a, con a continent that really needs help. But, you know, Africa has, is transforming itself, and it really does understand what are some of these needs. And it comes to having partnerships that really study and navigate the digital growth that is already happening and how that can be scaled up for mutual benefit. EU is also big on uh, space technology, or at least it's an area that uh, we've been seeing a lot of uh, space uh, and connectivity satellite that is coming from the EU. I think there's something that the EU should try and, and uh, really support in the African continent to ensure inclusivity and local ownership. I, I, you know, so those, are, those are things that really need to be matched together. It is not something that is being imported into the continent, but it's also something that has local ownership and can grow in uh, the local ecosystems. Last but not least, when we talk about the EU partnership, there's a framing also of the geopolitics. And I, I keep saying that it's an important conversation into our continent or into the African continent. We, we really need to tread carefully as when we have these uh, collaborations, what is the driving, the driving agenda around it? African continent, the policymakers are, are becoming very anxious about anything that is being framed around a competition out there. It is not the policymakers. When you're in policy, and as I was saying, I was previously in government, these were not conversations that used to drive our policy agendas. For us, it's, it's the issue of how many people are you connecting? Are young people able to get online? Can they get economic opportunities? Are there applications that can help with some of the persistent issues? For example, health, agriculture, and so forth. How can we start applying these technologies? So in any framing of any collaboration, as much as we have wonderful numbers, then can we try and anchor it to practical, programmatic encounters that also include local ownership and inclusivity? So it's, it's a mutual benefit for both the EU and the African countries. Jane, could we talk about another big investor in African connectivity? And that is, of course, China. 
The so-called digital Silk Road includes everything from cross-border e-commerce to smart cities and fintech apps. How do you see China's role in Africa's digital ecosystem? And how does its approach compare to ours in Europe? Thank you, Anna, for that question. China has been a partner of choice for most African countries, driven by their digital Silk Road initiatives. Um, they continue to do so for many reasons, and one could be their approach that they offer for, for the African governments. Africans want to work with multiple partners, so it's good to always highlight that in their digital development objectives and priorities. And in the digital infrastructure sector, uh, we've seen the China Digital Silk Road becoming an able and willing partner due to the strategies that they come with. So Chinese uh, governments and firms uh, provide a combined package. They offer the funding, they offer the technical expertise. And so these come in packages that are defined within governments. And for most African countries, it's a most beneficial involvement, especially when they have inadequate funds to build this infrastructure. The approach that comes with the Chinese is a bit different from what we've seen from Europe or some of the partnerships that are rising from the Europe continent. And beyond also the infrastructure that um, is signed between governments, we also see the Chinese uh, country itself offering a lot of end-user devices that are affordable uh, to most countries. So it, it becomes a trade issue. For example, when we can talk about mobile devices, 45% of devices in the African continent, those are mobile phones, are made in China. They are accessible, they are, uh, are widely available to Africans, on the reverse, we see only about 2% of the devices that are used in the African continent by European countries are from Europe. So the modality or how the Chinese are engaging within the African continent has a very different uh, approach from what we see in Europe. Europe collaboration has been on trade, but also some of the devices that we see coming on that are also priced on the higher end and not necessarily tailored for the African market. So going forward with an EU digital cooperation for the African continent, I think there's an opportunity to refocus from maybe some of the traditional ways that we've seen Europe engaging in the continent through capacity building, through data protection and the regulatory front to probably some of the areas of increased digital trade. And of course, we do have the AFCFTA, the Africa Free Trade Continental Agreement, which offers the EU opportunities to see how it can strengthen its impact on the continent, um, hopefully through more, uh, stronger digital trade agreements. Uh, Europe is, of course, uh, very much closer to the African continent. So I think that there are areas here of trade that can really be strengthened on some of the areas and also the modalities of how Europe tends to approach by fronting some of its companies and also being able to offer packages that are very practically oriented and meet the need for African governments. Jane, I have a follow-up question because I've recently been to Latin America and there I've heard very often that the Chinese basically provide airports and roads and the Europeans very often come from a position of perceived moral superiority and they come with lectures. Is that also the sentiment in, in countries in Africa? Yes, Yana, that is a very strong sentiment. So the Chinese come and partner with African countries readily without putting any sanctions, without any undertones that you have to change this, change that. But it becomes something that and African countries are, are more willing to engage in that, in that area. We're also seeing significant investments in infrastructure projects from U.S. tech giants, including Meta, 
Google and SpaceX. These tend to be packaged as philanthropic gestures rather than commercial decisions. But of course, as you've discussed previously, Jane, Africa is also a huge growth market. There's a lot of investment that is coming from the big tech. Yes, they have been framed with this development uh, agenda around them. We see impact assessments when the cables, the undersea cables were landing. I remember when Equiano cable was landing. That's the one by Google. There was even an impact assessment on a number of jobs. The same thing with Facebook, Impact 2 Africa Cable. I believe that's what it's called. So you, you tend to see a narrative that is being built around when they're making these investments in the, in the continent. But, Raphael, when you look at the amounts of investments that are being laid, I wouldn't call that philanthropic. We're talking about cables that are in the hundreds of millions and sometimes billions. And so we would have to ask ourselves then, why these investments? And if you look at the business models of these companies, I think we can get to it. Most of these companies are about getting users and getting to ensure that they are growing their customer base within the African continent. Again, I mentioned earlier, Africa has the potential of having one of the largest populations globally. By 2050, again, it's supposed to be one out of every four humans are going to be in, in the African continent. And so I think these are strategic investments looking forward. And I saw an author who had even called it a user gold rush, uh, which I found very, very interesting. So it's how can we get more users uh, we know where those users are going to come from. And then let's lay ensure that the infrastructure is there. One reason I can also say, I don't think it has any philanthropic uh, undertones here. Look at Starlink. Starlink has begun to launch its services across the continent. Last month, or is it earlier this month, Starlink launched its um, internet services within Kenya. If you look at the services that it's uh, providing, yes, they have the capacity to reach the unconnected, especially those in rural areas because of the connectivity technology it offers. But if you look at the, at the price points, it's not something that most Kenyans can even afford. It comes the one-time equipment cost of about 650, I think it's at 92,000 Kenya shillings, and then a monthly fee of $46, uh, dollars, about 6,500 Kenya shillings. So when you look at this, you can tell, this, I mean, they are, they are private companies. They are driven by profits. Yes, they may have some CSR, but I honestly think these are strategic investments. Looking forward to understand that this is where digital transformation is happening. If you look at the statistics and the innovation that is coming around from the African continent, this is going to be a very big market in the next 10, 15 years. So I believe this, for me, I see it as a strategic investment by these companies, just wanting to invest early get ahead of time um, so they can be able to ensure that their investment and their business grows in the foreseeable future. Maybe let's talk about big tech a bit more. Big tech looks to expand its African user base, as you just said. And I'd be curious to know how you see the role of social media platforms like Meta in communication, information, politics across the continent. That's a, uh, that's a really interesting question. There has been a lot of debate um, within the continent of late Big tech, especially social media platforms, have, are playing a huge and significant role, especially when it comes to dissemination of information, and especially around political or any political events um, that are happening during elections, or if there's a flare-up of any governance issues. A lot of people turn to social media to get the information. It becomes a life source for information sharing and for getting news. There are also good sources. Before we come now to some of the ills that maybe we're beginning to see out of that, 
but they're good sources of ensuring that people are engaged. So if you need to understand what's going ar- around, then you, as citizens, you're able to get the political discussions that are going around. You're also able to participate. And of course, there's a political campaign and getting your agenda out. But then comes the flip side of uh, social media. A lot of this, there's uh, misinformation, disinformation. There's a lot of citizen journalism. And yes, it may offer more democratization of this media space because you're allowing citizens to engage. But then we, not all of this information is being verified. Um, some of me, it is even being manipulated by AI and algorithms that are not being moderated. So sometimes it becomes an issue of, of how um, accurate this information is going out. And then another thing that we begin to see is also censorship and freedom of expression. Sometimes some governments that uh, are also dealing with issues of democracy and would want to silence one of the actors. There's been a lot of censorship in countries like Uganda. When something flares up, some governments even shut down um, the internet. Although sometimes this, this might be a necessary security issue, but we start seeing also where social media is also being infringed upon when it comes as a tool for freedom expression. Another issue that um, I would want just to highlight here and may not be tied more even to the politics is also what is beginning to emerge as a big tech issue, especially when it comes to employment and those who are being employed by these social media companies. And that's around the area of uh, filtering, especially for content moderation. This is something that is really becoming an issue because a lot of there's been, we've seen cases now within the African continent whereby content moderators are not being remunerated enough. And also they are being exposed uh, to a lot of content that is causing um, trauma and psychological issues and has become an issue of concern for governments and how to deal with with, with these uh, big tech companies. Unfortunately, they use second parties uh, like summer in Kenya when uh, when Facebook, uh, there's a case against them. And then they, they say that they're not the employers. But so there's some regulatory issues here that need to be dealt with, even as we see big tech influencing the social media space. But even those workers, who the, the local Africans who are beginning to get employed and, and, uh, and work in these platforms, how are they also being protected in the African content? And also issues of language and, and is, is there enough content around this, these social media platforms for, for those who are interacting with it? We're beginning to see some of the social media platforms going to Swahili or local languages. I think this is great, but it's, I think it's an area that can be also be improved highly. With dependency on foreign entities, whether that's Chinese firms or U.S. tech giants, there's growing concern in Europe about digital sovereignty. Is there a similar conversation around African digital sovereignty linking to African values, context, cultures? Yes, there is, Raphael. There is a huge conversation about digital sovereignty. It's a global issue. And yes, it's uh, made the front lines also of uh, many conversations in policy, academia. And the question is, how can Africa also ensure its own digital sovereignty? It becomes a bit complicated because a lot of the infrastructure that is being laid in the continent is through um, foreign entities, like you've mentioned, be it the Chinese or the U.S. tech giants or even European investments. So then the question of if the infrastructure is being laid, then how much of that uh, digital sovereignty can African countries achieve? The conversation has been revolving around then regulating this space And one of those ways is through data protection and privacy laws. So this is a a conversation that many African countries are beginning to engage in. 
can we have comprehensive data protection laws to ensure that the privacy and the security of citizens and their personal data is also secure? So they're regulating that space to ensuring that uh, the, the local data that is being collected is also being uh, protected. Secondly, what I would also have seen a lot of this is there's a lot of digital economy development policies and agendas that are also trying to grow their digital economies. Um, so the digital industries has become a priority. So based on the current infrastructure, then how can we get digital sovereignty on what is actually now coming out of the digital infrastructure, despite it being laid by international partners? Then, of course, the internet governance and regulation, those are some of the things, the conversations that are going around. But above all, then it, it's, it still goes to how much can African countries govern this area and how can they also get ahead of this curve? Because if it's about the infrastructure that is being laid and then it determines um, how much that is owned by the local countries, then it also becomes an issue of funding and how can uh, African countries grow their local investments into the digital infrastructure that has been laid, and not just also the infrastructure, but also local content development. It's something that uh, we, we need to see more promotion uh, and creation of content that is relevant for the continent and is coming and is growing from the innovation hubs and from industry in the continent. I would like to learn more about data protection, which is, at least in Europe, also a big topic I was struck by what you told us about the iris scans. So legislative efforts to safeguard data and to protect privacy. Is this something where African governments find a common voice or do you see different approaches emerging from the different capitals on the continent? The WorldCoin, the orb cases, is unfortunately, I see it as something that is going to continue happening. And But thankfully is we do have a lot of countries, or we have quite a considerable grain of countries that have recognized the importance of data protection. So yes, Yana, there is a significant regulation or countries or legislation that has been implemented to safeguard countries or citizens when it comes to data. And actually a lot of the data protection laws that we are seeing within the African continent are inspired by the global standards of the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. A country like Kenya, for example, has the Data Protection Act. I was involved in some of that, of providing some of the feedback for that legal framework. And now there's Office of the Data Protection Commissioner. And the interesting part, even despite these laws, is some companies or some of these AI or emerging technologies are able to abide by the laws that are there. And there's a loophole that somehow tends to exist for them to operate because this organization was already licensed as a data processor by the, the office of the data commissioner. But then the question of what the data was going to use maybe was not fully given to the, the, the regulator. You also see Nigeria where they also have the, they've enacted the, the Nigeria data protection regulation that was in 2019. Also Ghana passed the data protection act. Rwanda has one. Tunisia also has a data protection authority. Mauritius has one. So we have a lot of countries that are beginning to enact these laws. I think the question now is having the regulator's office fully empowered and able also to stay ahead of the new and emerging technologies and how they will be using data or how they will be using it for generative, especially for generative AI. How are these regulators adequately skilled? Are they also able to pass regulations that are also keeping up with the upcoming AI and newer technologies in the market without also trying to inhibit uh, the innovation space.
moving now to the opportunities of digital development. And I think you mentioned some of them passing already when you referred to health, agriculture, climate. Could you maybe give us a couple of examples about developments that you are particularly excited about when it comes to Africa's digital transformation? Yes, Rafael, I can. The Africa's digital transformation, oh my goodness, it has so much potential. Again, it's a rising area where a lot of young people are getting connected day by day or a lot of people are coming online. So this is offering a unique opportunity for sustainable and more economic growth using leveraging data. And I go into data because of this is where I see a lot of potential coming out. The data that is coming out, how can that be harnessed for use of innovations? Already we've seen a lot of innovations that have literally disrupted the African scene. The fintech mobile money that we have seen in East Africa that started in Kenya, that's in Pesa, has disrupted banking or have given people access to online mobile services. So these are people who are now financially included. We also seen agri-tech is an area that is really beginning to grow. We have a lot of innovations that are trying to support uh, food security within the continent. In Kenya, we have an innovator that is called Twigger Foods. Twigger Foods is one that is able to get the product from that, the person that is producing it and taking it to the consumer. So, And, and these are just simple innovations that are, are arising out of the continent. We also have innovations that are looking at climate change. There's one in Kenya called Mkopa. Um, whereby Kenyans are able to pay as you go for solar energy solutions. So instead of power, and, and as I said, energy is something that we really have to contend with within the African continent. If we're going to run a digital economy, then people also have to be connected to the power grid or at least other solutions like uh, solar. So there are areas of, uh, of great potential is the innovative space. And that innovative space is going to mirror the issues or the, that we have seen in the African continent. Youth unemployment, areas of opportunities, the gig economy, young people coming online, being able to get uh, economic opportunities out of that. Uh, if it comes to agri-tech, can we grow the food reliance space? If it's the health space, then can we use data to help uh, get people better health systems, especially in telemedicine? These are areas that we are beginning to see People get in treatment as long as there's a connectivity from one side in the urban area, there's a doctor, but in the rural area, then you're able to connect for medical treatment. So it's an exciting space, a lot of opportunities that are growing up and definitely a space to watch when it comes to innovate, the innovative potential that is coming out of the African continent within the hubs and also the potential of what the young people are bringing into this space. Thank you so much for sharing your extensive experience and knowledge with us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure listening to you. Oh, you're very welcome. Europe Listens is brought to you by the European Council on Foreign Relations and supported by Stiftung Mercator. Our producer is Eliza Epperley. Project coordination by Angela Mera. Sound design and editing by Benjamin Nash. <laughs>